0: And Kerouac was trying out for football at Columbia, and Ginsburg was an academic jerk, too. Neil wasn't like that because he was stealing cars in Denver and, and you know, being in pot. And I was taking peyote and pot in early days and doing all that shit. I mean, it's hard to explain, but uh, they, they meant nothing to me, the, the kids from back east influenced millions of kids that wanted to get on the road. It had no meaning to me. I'd already been there.
1: Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off-topic. Today I dig into some intriguing stories behind the story of the Beat Generation, which in the late 1950s gave rise to Jack Kerouac's On the Road, William S. Burroughs's Naked Lunch, and the Allen Ginsberg poem Howl, which ultimately revolutionized publishing and obscenity laws in the United States. As a group, the Beats sought to escape the mundane prescriptions about how life in America was supposed to be lived, According to writer David Halberstam in his eponymous Social History of the 1950s, the Beats were, quote, the first to protest what they considered to be the blandness, conformity, and lack of cultural purpose in American life. The Beats consciously rejected middle class suburban affluence and pioneered what would eventually become known as the counterculture. They didn't seek a future of stability and guaranteed pensions, but instead sought freedom freedom to pick up and go across the country at a moment's notice if they so chose. They saw themselves as men seeking spiritual rather than purely material destinies, end quote. The central characters of the Beat generation have been dead for a long time now, but the 83-year-old poet and small press publisher Charles Plymel, who I talked to in today's episode, witnessed a good chunk of the Beat movement firsthand. He roomed with Kerouac's on-the-road protagonist Neil Cassidy in San Francisco. He hosted Allen Ginsberg when the poet was at work on his famous anti-war poem Wichita Vortex Sutra. And he socialized with William S. Burroughs in Lawrence, Kansas in the years right before Burroughs died. In addition to all that, Charlie and his wife Pamela Beach-Plymel published the earliest of artist Robert Crumb's Zap comic books, which revolutionized the underground comic scene in the 1960s and helped give rise to graphic novels as we know them today. Charlie has written several books of his own poetry over the years, as well as a novel called The Last of the Moccasins, which was published by City Light Books in San Francisco. His best-known writing was anthologized in a 2013 book called Benzedrine Highway. I'll link to that in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. I spent two days with Charlie and Pam Plymel at their home in Cherry Valley, New York, earlier this year. And what I liked about Charlie is that while he witnessed countless events that helped shape the beat generation, he considered himself an outsider within the movement, and he's never harbored a sentimental or rose-tinted perspective on what happened back in the day. For example, I've always been a big fan of Jack Kerouac's travel book On the Road, and generations of readers worldwide have romanticized it since it first came out in 1957
0: the only people that interest me are the mad ones
1: the ones who are mad to live mad to talk desirous of everything at the same time the ones that never yawn, want say a commonplace thing but burn
2: burn burn like roman candles across the night
1: that's an outtake from on the road as voiced in the trailer to walter salas's 2012 movie adaptation of the book But as poetic as Kerouac's writing could be, he was, in real life, a complicated and largely unhappy person whose death at age 47 was tied to cirrhosis of the liver. Charlie reminded me that one of the more infamous moments of Kerouac's late-life alcoholic phase came when he showed up visibly drunk on William F. Buckley's political TV show Firing Line during a 1968 episode about the hippie movement. Here's an outtake from that show at a moment when Kerouac lost track of who he was talking with.
0: Uh, did you want to comment on that, Mr. Kerouac? Sorry. Oh, yeah. I was asking why he wants followers. Who? Yeah. Mr. Sanders? Abramowitz or what his name is. <laughs> 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 don't <What's> be anti Semitic with me. <laughs> I happen to be Jewish. That's My the name is Yablonsky. Answer, yeah. What is the classic answer? To call you by your name. Well, why'd you call me Abramowitz? I don't well, know. Well, uh, what is it? Yablonsky. Oh, Yablonsky. Yeah, well, let's see. <laughs>
2: Hey, you didn't, you didn't mean to be rude,
0: Polish. did you, as Come on now. No, no, no. I, I thought... As
1: it happened, the writer Truman Capote was in the show's green room that day. Capote had previously dismissed Kerouac's On the Road, which had reputedly been written in one benzedrine fueled burst of spontaneous prose, as, quote, not writing, but typing. It also happened that Charlie and Pam Plymel were in the studio that day as guests of Kerouac's old friend Allen Ginsberg. Here's how they remember it.
0: There's a whole film of it, but it never shows the good stuff, which happened later. And going back out, there are the studios. There were these wide cement stairs with steel lining in the front of them. You've seen them in these big office buildings. Uh, before we got there, we were in the hallway. Alan was in front of Kerouac. I was behind Kerouac. I looked over there it's Truman Capote was getting ready to go on, crimping, and I had his door open trolling to see who was, who was where, and I said, oh, there's Truman Capote. And Carac whirled around, and he says, where is that little queer I've been wanting to? And then I can't remember the rest of it, what he was threatening to do to him. Calouac sort of blamed me for, for it, <laughs> because when we got to the head of the stairs, He grabbed me by the collar and said, well, who in the hell are you to blah, blah, blah. And uh, I said, well, uh, you know, fuck you or something. The thought came into my head. All I have to do is pull him. And he tumbled to his peril on the cement steel stairs. But I saw in my head, I said, oh, the headlines, unknown poet kills famous author. So uh so get the fuck down the stairs or whatever. And and so we went to a bar, and Pam sat uh, between Allen and Kerouac in a booth or beside him. No, across him from Kerouac. No, no, I sat across. You sat with him. I remember yeah, that. Uh,
2: yeah, I was wedged in there somewhere. Yeah. Unlike Charlie, I had read a lot of Kerouac, and so here I was sitting next to... An important writer that I had liked a lot, and he was absolutely not interested in me because I wasn't a big, blousy woman, and Alan, you know, he and Alan were talking to each other a lot, and as Charlie put in uh, Hand on the Doorknob, it's the last time they saw each other.
1: Now, was that the only time you hung out with Kerouac?
2: hmm
0: Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't care for him. He's a boring mommy's boy, pussy.
2: Well, th- th- this was two months before he passed away. By then he was a raging, horrible alcoholic, and it, it, it doesn't matter who the alcoholic is. At that stage, they're unpleasant to be around. But it was also, you know, I was uh, not not. I was twenty years old. Were you twenty years old? Yeah, or twenty. Maybe mm-hmm. I just turned twenty-one. So you know, he was a famous you know, writer. He was a yeah. famous writer. It was whoa. I'm here between two famous writers. <laughs> um, it, it's, uh, but he wasn't. He wasn't fascinating, and he was very protected by his in-laws. The men who were with him were some of the Sampas who by then were controlling him a great deal. And, and of course he died, you know what, two, two and a half months later. So I think that uh, that was all part of it, you know. The, the, and they, they worked at controlling his relationship with, with Ginsburg. They they wanted, they they were controlling him, said what he could drink.
0: There was a lot of money involved.
2: There was a lot of money. and, and was a supposed lot to be of, a and forgery
0: there was, of his will and all that shit.
2: They were telling him what, you know, what to do, and, and he was letting them because without it, he didn't get to drink.
0: I was never interested in him, in his writing. I never read it on the road, but Claude compared my last of the moccasins, his, he said it's better than Dr. Sachs. And then someone got all hot about that, so I read Dr. Sachs to see what was, I mean he had a few good lines in it, but it was, it was sort of academic. And then I had been on the road since I was a kid myself, traveling all the western states on my own. So some guy comes out from his mother's place with Neil driving. He can't even drive a stick shift, Kerak, and talks about his being on the road. Well, I've been all over that all uh, before. While he was, you know, uh, trying to get on a football team in Columbia or some jerk-ass thing. <laughs>
1: While Charlie Plymel's one and only encounter with Jack Kerouac didn't go so well, Charlie had won the respect of many people inside the Beat Generation because he had already lived what they saw as an authentic and free-spirited American life. Like Kerouac's friend and literary protagonist Neil Cassidy, Plymel wasn't formally educated, and he'd spend his youth traveling and working and hustling his way across the American West. Charles Plymel was born in a converted chicken coop in western Kansas near the town of Holcomb in the middle of Dust Bowl in 1935 at a time when the epic 19th century cattle drives that gave rise to the myth of the American cowboy were still a living memory. Charlie grew up eating jackrabbits his mother hunted, embarking on ramshackle road trips to see his family in California, and getting his first taste of elementary education in Dust Bowl-era Kansas.
0: A one-room schoolhouse out above Ulysses where we had our farm. It was three miles to school and we got to school however we could. Hitch a ride with a farmer, or ride a horse, or run through the wheat fields. But, and the woman who taught us was a temperance woman, so every morning we had to sing, What's the matter with wine, sir? Alcohol? Alcohol is a drug, you see, leaving a trail of misery. What's the matter with wine, sir? Alcohol. I've
1: never heard that
0: before. (laughs) (laughs) Here
2: it is, 80, you know, nearly 80-some years later, and he's got the whole, all the lines. Well, I
0: had to memorize it. Well, I mean, that was a one-room schoolhouse, so he's there with all the, uh, our whole, all my sisters and everyone's, And then the woman, the teacher, the temperance woman, she had to cook lunch, too, which is usually baked beans. But, um, and they had a little cellar for tornado shelter, and that was it. And then we moved in town to Ulysses. We went to California. My first trip in the back of a truck in 1939, Route 66, Uh, my commute, Axe epiphany. And in the back of the truck, I didn't write my first poem, but I recited my first poem. And my sisters wrote it down. Vacha picha, vacha picha, vacha picha vu. Hip, hip, hooray, the dogs are coming. (laughs) <laughs> How old were you? I was born in '35. I was 39, four years old, and everything was fragrance. And San Bernardino, they had orange festivals, and you know. And then, oh, that was a that was when Hollywood, the greatest films in the world were ever made in '39. And my sisters knew everything about it, and, and they'd say, "Oh, here comes Bing Crosby in his convertible." And the others say, no, that's Bob Crosby, his brother. So they were really into it, you know. And, and uh, I did not they didn't have kindergarten, so I didn't have to go to that stupid shit. And uh, so I could remember, and everything was glistening. The air was pure, the water was pure. It was paradise. I'm a dust bowl refugee, just a dust bowl refugee. From that dust bowl to the peach bowl now that peach fuzz is killing me
1: Charlie would eventually return and live in California in the 1960s though he spent much of his young adult years in Kansas and other parts of the American West working on pipelines and various other blue collar jobs and competing in rodeos His most formative experiences as a young man came in the city of Wichita when he threw himself into the drug-fueled jazz, art, and outlaw country scenes he later documented in his book, The Last of the Moccasins.
0: Well, we could go to clubs and uh, across the tracks and at Miss Dunbar's and eat best barbecue ribs in the world and listen to Chuck Willis and on the jukebox and things like that, and it was at the time, well we could go to the Cowboy Inn out on West Street, clear up on West Street, almost out in the country. And the Cowboy Inn, I mean everyone would come there. Little Jimmy Dickens would open for anyone, Hank Williams and Lefty Frizzell, all of them would come there. And it was a real rough place, you know. people. It, getting fights and everything there but and then those old uh, cowboy bands uh, we'd hit them up they had mason jars full of dexedrine which is a form of benzodine because that was a popular drug then in the bar yeah no hell yes on the bandstand a mason jar full of dexedrine spaniels i mean one little club the early mambo club was where fat's domino came we had to go out north broadway and the Rock Castle was there. We could see all the jazz guys there, real good sax guys, they all came down. The first time they recorded Charlie Parker was at the Trocadero Club in Wichita. First time he was there recorded with Jay Machan Band. And then if you wanted uh, the Old Country Western, the real start, you go to Cowboy Inn. So we had a, we had both the best worlds there. And then after they closed, We'd go to a private club called Key Club or something and uh, uh, talk all night on Benzedrine. And uh, Mickey Shaughnessy, I think he was hot with—George uh, uh, Polis was the only uh, real gangster in Wichita, a Greek gangster, <laughs> and his sister, she hung out with us a little bit. and. Uh, George
1: Polis was, he would hang out in the 90s, he
0: was still around. Yeah, yeah, my friend Pat O'Connor sent me a thing, he ran for mayor, George Polis for mayor. <laughs> I remember one time we were driving out to the South Broadway Club and he had his 45 and he said, here, shoot that guy's gas cap. I said, no, shit, I'm going, no, I won't do it. And then Brannerman, who's, that picture up there, he's, the grandma younger, he's related to the younger brothers. that Rode with Jesse James. He was, uh, he and I was in the Wichita jail. He went to the pea farm, and uh, I went out. I was for writing a hot check or something like that. And because uh, we were, you know, petty gangsters and uh, up all night thinking we were hip and all that. Wearing the Mr. B collars and peg pants and one-button rolls and everything like that. And Branaman, I think after he went to the pea farm, he went. He was real into printmaking, and there was a good printmaking professor at Wichita that Bruce Conner studied with. And Branaman was really into printmaking, so he said, "Hey, man, let's go out to the youth." Uh, I said, "Oh shit!" And so we got into the university there and uh that started i went several years but never finished the degree there but i guess i'll take a walk tonight i know that i can't sleep and i won't go to bed at all i just live there and wait
1: The semi-fictionalized recounting of these experiences in the book The Last of the Moccasins is actually how Charlie Plymouth came onto my radar. Wichita is my hometown, and back in the 1990s, when I was a young man reading Kerouac and Ginsberg, as many young men do, I was enamored by the idea that Kansas had played an influential role in the development of the Beat Generation, which included Kansas-born poets like Michael McClure, as well as Bruce Connor, who was one of the most influential experimental filmmakers of the 20th century. Like Connor and McClure, Charlie came into his own as an artist and publisher when he left Kansas for San Francisco in the early 1960s. And Charlie's initial connection to the Beats traces back to an epic, drug-fueled house party at his Gough Street apartment one night in the summer of 1963.
0: We were having a party and uh, it was getting real crazy because we were on LSD and uh, Panama Red and everything else. and. Uh, uh, Alan had just gotten back from India and it was all in the press and everything and there were parties for him that night in Sausalito and all the big uh, uh, beat queens and people like that were having parties. So I opened the door and he and Ginsberg and the McClure's and Whalen were at the door. I said, "Oh, come on in. I guess someone told him that the Wichita people lived there or something.
2: More than likely, somebody said there's a party. Good party. They have good stuff there. How did you get that flat?
0: Well, there were some Wichita kids that lived there. They were into meth or something. And, uh, you know, San Francisco had all of its different scenes. And, and they were young kids from Wichita, and they were into meth. And I didn't know them that well, but the, the pad was passed on, and I didn't know it at the time, but that's where Alan had lived when he wrote How. So he knew more than I did about the pad.
1: you say meth, do you mean like methamphetamine? They were—
0: Yeah, there was a big uh, big thing like that in San Francisco going, too. There was LSD, there was Sandoz that we had. 'Cause Alan Russo from Wichita, he was the only one that was formally literate. And uh he wrote letters to Sandoz Laboratories and they sent us vials of pure L S D.
1: And that was was that legal
0: or Yeah. And then he wrote letters to Light Laboratories in England and they sent us pure little bottles of mescaline.
1: What was their Interest in sending you?
0: I don't know. Alan just made something up. I mean, he was the one in Palo in Wichita. He'd write down there in Texas, and they'd send us up a whole carton of peyote for a dollar a box or something.
1: Did you have that at the party at Goff?
0: Well, party? no. That we we no. We had pure mescaline, which was a derivative that we didn't need peyote anymore. That was too organic, so pure mescaline we had from England and so we had a full medicine cabinet and then
1: and then how did it go from from Ginsburg
0: crashing your party to Ginsburg being your roommate for a while Um, oh he said he was looking for a place with Neil who had been at dr. Radar's house over there by Furlan and so I went over to see him there and um, he had a monkey that was supposed to attack you if you weren't, didn't have the right vibes. And I got past the monkey. He said he was looking for a place to uh, get Neil to finish it, to write his book. And I said, well, I have a seven-room flat for a hundred bucks a month if you want to share it. <laughs>
1: So it was that Charlie Plymel went from being a Kansas outlaw to living in California with two of the most recognizable figures of the Beat generation. Charlie was with Ginsburg and Neal Cassidy the day that President Kennedy was assassinated that fall, an experience which Ginsburg recounted in his poem November twenty-third, 1963 alone, which contrary to its title didn't recount the experience of being alone, but recalled, quote, the television continuous blinking two radar days with Charlie muttering in his underwear strewn bedroom, with Neil running down the hall shouting about the racetrack. End quote. At the time, Neil Cassidy had just finished his parole period after spending two years in San Quentin prison on a trumped up marijuana charge, and Ginsburg was helping him write an autobiographical novel, which eventually was published by City Lights Books under the title The First Third. Of his two new roommates, Charlie most identified with Neil.
0: Neil and I, we, I gravitated to him immediately because he was like the old pillheads in Wichita, Kansas City, Denver, St. Louis, the Midwest, Amphetamine uh, and all that. And so I related to him instantly and we got along fine. And then he came over and uh, he moved in with Alan because uh, that's where he was, Neil was going to write his book. And then that's why uh, uh, Ferlinghetti came over a lot because Ferlinghetti going to publish it finally. Because Neil always had this thing about he was the errand boy for Kerouac and he wanted to be known as a writer too. Because uh, he, uh, he had stories and uh, he sh- should be a writer too. And, uh, and he had been in San Quentin and uh, oh that's another thing I didn't like. And uh, I never met his wife, but I didn't want to because she uh, sort of, well, let, let them take him to San Quentin. It'll teach him good. Uh, her mind was, mindset was, well, that'll serve him right. You know, he's fooling around with all these girls and stuff. Take him to San Quentin and, and make a good boy out of him for two joints and Neil was always generous and he gave those um, private dicks uh, two joints because they gave him a lift to get to his uh, job on the railroad. And then Kerouac with his fame and even Allen with his fame, instead of protesting the deal there for two joints going to San Quentin, they, uh, they were assholes too. They were all assholes. Ferlinghetti and uh, Ginsburg came over to help him write his novel. That was sort of their task there when they moved in. So I told him, you know, they're Ferlinghetti and Ginsburg were both academics, essentially, and they were trying to make a novel out of it. Just transcribe him and record it and transcribe it and print it out. <laughs> but they, you know, they didn't listen to me. But... Uh,
2: well, for somebody uh, like Ginsberg, whose basic credo of writing was first thought best. Yeah,
0: that's Kerouac's. Uh,
2: that he wanted to rewrite Cassidy. And that has never made sense no, to me. No,
0: none of it made sense. I say they were both academics trying to Deal with this guy that I said, just transcribe him and print it.
2: It needed to be a stream of consciousness. And it didn't matter. And because they, that's how Neil was.
1: I mean, what did you and Cassidy talk about? What did you, you and Neil talk about when, when
0: he oh, was your roommate? Everything on and on. he just keep going and uh, free associating and. Uh, Then when…
2: I'm sure that your main topic of conversation was pot and pussy.
0: And cars. Yes. Cars. All
2: right. I'll give you that.
0: (laughs) PPC. (laughs) Uh, Well, yeah, he always had his shoebox full of grass, and he wasn't much of anything else.
1: Besides pot, pussy, and cars?
0: Yeah. Car.
1: Were you able to get a word in edgewise?
0: No, 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 no. You couldn't I, I called him the fastest word in the West. You weren't able to get anything in. No. Uh, and I never read on the road, but Neil would read me his parts of it sometime. He'd sit down, pull it out, and read about himself. He was proud of his role? Yeah, oh yeah. He'd dra- dramatize it and uh, say, talking about me, blah, 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 and read it. And, uh, but he was always, uh, he never, he wanted to be part of, a writer too, and uh, never could be because he was just, uh, he said, well I'm just their errand boy, he was He just, was
2: as charismatic a person as I've ever met or seen. You you couldn't help but be drawn to him. I, I remember before. he he died, we were at City Lights and he was really upset. Nobody would cash a check for him. He had a check, third party check. Who knows what it was. It whether it was any good or not, it didn't matter. This was Neil Cassidy at City Lights and the, the whoever was running the, the cash register wouldn't cash it. And Charlie mm-hmm. and I went in and said, We'll guarantee it. I mean, it was fifty dollars. It wasn't, you know, two thousand dollars. It. We just went in and yeah.
0: said, "Well." They th- go you know. People would want to be picking fights with him or something. I'd have to kind of intervene, talk him down. I mean, he, Neil was a real uh, sweetheart. He wouldn't, you know, wouldn't hurt anyone.
2: No. And I don't. I don't remember if the check was any good or not. It didn't didn't no, seem it didn't, it didn't matter because he was the kind of person you just automatically did that for so people didn't trust him some people well he did he was a con yeah. man
1: but if the uh, the ladies liked him
2: Yes. Oh, boy. yeah he was he he was crazy.
0: hot i'll trade you my heart for your heart baby give you all my kisses to do. i'll trade you my heart for your heart.
1: Though Charlie felt more comfortable around Neil Cassidy, his most important relationship that year was with his other roommate, the poet Allen Ginsberg. Allen called on Charlie for help three years later in January of 1966 when he was traveling cross-country in an attempt to document America as the war in Vietnam was escalating. By this time, Charlie had met and married Pamela Beach, the daughter of artist Mary Beach, and the couple had begun to publish underground magazines. Allen Ginsberg was intrigued with the idea that Charlie and so many other creative people he knew in San Francisco had come from Wichita, this seemingly conservative place in the exact geographical center of the country. So he made a point of stopping there as he and his boyfriend, Peter Orlovsky, drove their Volkswagen van across the country.
2: Before we left San Francisco in the fall of 65, Charlie said, I'm going to Wichita. And Allen said, well, we're gonna drive across country. I'll come and visit you. So Charlie gave him his mother's phone number, and that's the number that Alan called when he got to Wichita.
0: <laughs> I guess Ginsberg was fascinated on what produced those waves coming out of uh, Wichita and when our last game, Ginsburg first hit Wichita. and he called me I had. Told them where to go, but they, you know, it's like a totally, uh, they were really in a foreign country. But they landed in the heart of <laughs> crisscross, where <laughs> we used to call it, we used to get crisscross Mexican bennies there, Douglas and uh, Broadway, Broadway and Douglas. <laughs> That's always been the, the main center of Wichita. So where did they end up? Oh, they ended up down at the Chinese restaurant at Broadway and Douglas where George Polis said that was his office because he had intimidated the Chinese already and he'd do his operations out of there all the time. And George Polis was in the booth talking to them. (laughs) We went to the poet's house resident, poet and resident of, of Wichita U. Bruce Cutler was his name. So I said, well let's go over and see the poet, maybe he invite you to reading stuff like that. He slammed the door in our face. And uh, so then I don't know. Then the philosophy student guy, he finally got out on the reading in Wichita, at the Wichita U in the in the philosophy department.
1: Ginsburg's public
0: appearances that evening attracted
1: the Wichita police, as well as a reporter from Life magazine, and eventually gave rise to one of his most famous poems.
0: I'm an old man now, and a lonesome man in Kansas, but not afraid to speak my lonesomeness in a car, because not only my lonesomeness, it's ours, all over America, oh tender fellows. And spoken lonesomeness is prophecy in the moon a hundred years ago or in the middle of kansas now it's not the vast plains mute our mouths that fill at midnight with ecstatic language when our trembling bodies hold each other breast to breast on a mattress
1: that's a section of ginsberg's poem wichita vortex sutra as read by the author with original music by the composer philip glass This poem was informed by a series of audio tape recordings Ginsberg made during his USA road trip—one could say it began as a proto-podcast of sorts— and its anti-war theme culminates with a sad elegy for the shrinking power of language and its power to preempt and end war during an era of competing information. I've linked to the full text of that poem in the show notes at rolfpotts.com. Charles Plymel appeared alongside Allen Ginsberg in the Life magazine story about the poet's experience in Wichita. But Charlie's biggest contribution to the cultural moment came the following year, just before what was known as the Summer of Love back in San Francisco. Charlie, at the time, used his Multilith press to publish a controversial comic book by a then-unknown artist who would go on to influence the underground comics movement and spark the rise of graphic novels, and that artist's name was Robert Crum.
0: I had known his work. Crumb's work. Yeah, and was fascinated by that. And it turns out, this kid came over who was doing uh, crumbs, he, he couldn't find a printer because no one would print it. So he knew I had a printer, and Bradman knew I had a, a press. And so they came over, and I was able to uh, shoot the different colors, crumb would make one color and then the next color, and then I had to run the whole thing in, in black to sort of figure out where they'd go on the machine. So it was a really hard chore, and no one knows how many copies
1: really? <laughs> came
0: out.
2: That were finished, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he, th- there's various different accounts, and some Don Donahue had 5,000, and I… That was f-
0: supposed to have been the deal. He was uh, going to trade but his…
2: But we, we collated them on Crumb's dining room table, and I cannot imagine, and we had a, a saddle stitch stapler to, to staple them together they and everything. Anywhere between
0: a thousand uh, to five thousand.
2: Fifteen maybe. There was no, we were all too stoned and too hyper to be able to have done five thousand of them.
0: Hey, We were so stoned, and then Janis Joplin left us tickets to come over to Fillmore Auditorium for Big Brother and the Holding Company. It was one of their big appearances and it was only a few blocks but we couldn't get there. We were so stoned. And, uh, so I ran that on the Multilith, that's that comics. Some say it's number one. They usually say it's a Plymel issue. It's it has gone for twenty thousand dollars. Set a record for the most expensive sold comics in the world.
2: That was the year of the being in and things like yeah, that in San a, Francisco. It was
0: a, yeah. That was when they went over and Alan uh, did that stupid dance that they have on the documentary. Is, what,
1: is hippie dance
0: or something? No, it was one of, I don't know, some kind of Indian guru dance. It's not rhythmic, so I don't know.
1: Were you guys in San Francisco during the Summer of Love? Or did you yeah, move? yeah, yeah, we were
0: right there. I was right behind the, where Alan got on stage, but I didn't want to, you know. Well, I we didn't dance we like were that.
2: over all of that. Yeah, it way was. Over. We we. It, I mean, I it told you yesterday, like the kids yeah, I was in sense. high school with.
0: I gotta take this off. Yeah, you can.
2: They we were the first flower kids in '64, uh-huh. dancing in the street barefoot. Uh-huh. And so by '67, you know, it was it was done for. In the hate, there were thousands of people who came because you know the the song, the the put whatever it is. Are you coming to San Francisco? And all and they came, and they didn't have places to live, and they didn't have money, and they didn't have anything but to get stoned and dance and, and get sick. A lot of kids got really sick. That's not recorded. They weren't prepared to, they, I don't know, they thought it was California, the land of, of milk and honey. And, you know, the it would all be flowing and, and it wasn't there and there wasn't there there wasn't, there wasn't jobs for them and there wasn't anything that they could really do they didn't know how to do anything they were just thousands of young kids
1: yes, this era, that is, throughout the 1960s, as he rubbed shoulders with the likes of Crumb and Ginsberg and Cassidy, Charlie was writing and publishing poems of his own, though for the most part he made his living doing manual labor. His most well-known work, The Last of the Moccasins, was published by City Lights Books in 1971, the same year that City Lights published Neil Cassidy's book. But the story of how Charlie's experimental novel came into existence traces back to his union job on the San Francisco docks. And all these years later, Charlie's enthusiasm for that union job can at times outstrip his enthusiasm for the book that followed.
0: I had the best job in the world on the San Francisco docks. That the guy I told you about, my, the old man of my older sister, the son of the Irish sheriff and the black Matter in Deadwood, South Dakota. He was on the docks and uh, he got me a job on the docks. Okay. I call in when I don't want to go to work, and I call in when I do want to go to work. And I made so much money because I worked uh, six hours, got paid for eight. It was sort of uh, ridiculous, I mean, uh, <clears throat> the union was so strong. I could go to Kaiser Hospital. and We could go to downtown San Francisco, find the best dentist in the world, get gold teeth Zero bill, no copay, none of that shit. Go to Kaiser Hospital, have anything done, zero, no copay. All prescriptions, zero, no copay. All eye care, zero, no care. Glasses, zero, you don't have to buy glasses. Didn't have to go to work on my birthday, got paid for it. Shit like that. I mean, there's a lot of feather bedding, sure, but the only thing you could get fired for was fighting or stealing. And the old uh, Italian crew bosses, they'd check me out, new, you know, walking down. And so I had to stop in one box car, <clears throat> drink hard alcohol with the ex-cons, maybe the next box car, smoke some reefer with the Mexicans who were betting on how fast the Irishman could work. But everything got done as supposed to in the night. And we'd walk to work down the Mission District and and then the longshoremen would take the goods on the ships. and But we'd carry uh, longshoremen hooks because it was pretty rough down there. And there's a big Sioux Indian and you know a big plate that you'd have to get in a box car, usually a lift truck, forklift to lift them. He could lift them. You had to get along, and you couldn't. You couldn't screw up. I mean, so the Italian crew by, hey, Plymel, come here. You know the mob owns the company and owns the union too, don't you? I said, oh yeah, sure. And then he'd try to stop me to see what the the boss of the company would do. And then he'd come by and he'd say, Plymel, you want to work or you want to go home? And so the he'd try to figure out my reaction to see if I was an FBI plant or something like that.
1: And were you loading train cars with?
0: Yeah, we were unloading train cars and getting ready for the ships and then for the land freight and the sea freight. And the, the teams were so strong that the longshoremen, we were stronger than the longshoremen. Actually, it was, they got so big, they were they were taking over Alaska. and So that job, I had it made, and I made so much, and most of the dock workers made so much that they would call in because you couldn't make too much in the tax bracket. So I sort of could work when I wanted. And uh, then uh, the big Sioux Indian, he'd say, you asshole, you asshole. And so he'd say, yeah, okay. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and he was, was he really strong? This yeah, is... yeah.
0: He could lift one of those big plates into the boxcars.
1: And he thought he said, everyone was an asshole?
0: If he if he felt like it, he'd say, you asshole. I'd say, yep.
1: <laughs> How long did you work this
0: job? <laughs> well, not long enough, because two different times some kids from Hopkins came to recruit me I said, no, no I, don't, I don't know anything about I've never been back there. And uh, finally I said, yeah, and that was a bad uh, decision, at least at first, but the guy who started the writing seminars, he was a good old guy. and he bring me to the faculty lunch and everything, so I'd say something off color to everyone. Like, but that's but, where you wrote, wrote the uh, first draft of last Moccasins, Moccasins. And I sent it to Ferlinghetti, and he, he published it, you
2: know. it. It was the first novel that he published. And he, at that time, did not have the staff or the knowledge on how to
0: promote a, yeah, it, a, a book like and that. And it wasn't even technically a novel, it was just... You know.
2: Yeah, but the techn- uh, w- uh, autobiographical novel, whatever didn't it's know called, what As, it, it's, it's kind of a unique thing. And it it ended up becoming an underground classic.
0: I don't know why, but Ferling Getty published me, he turned down Kerouac and he turned down Burroughs and he published my book but I never got any royalties. No,
2: that's not true. Well, he
0: gave me an advance, 500 fucking dollars, and that's the last I saw of it.
1: Though The Last of the Moccasins wasn't a commercial success, in the same sense as On the Road or Howl, it was well-reviewed. The San Francisco Chronicle called it, quote, "...hilariously funny and the best evocation of the beat scene since Kerouac," end quote. Charlie and Pam stayed on the East Coast after Charlie finished his degree at Johns Hopkins, and eventually they moved to Cherry Valley, New York, where they still live today. Over the years, they've hosted a number of beat luminaries there, including William S. Burroughs, the iconoclastic novelist who's influenced everyone from the Beatles and Bob Dylan to Iggy Pop and Kurt Cobain, In turn, Burroughs hosted Charlie and Pam at his place in Lawrence, Kansas, where the author lived the final years of his life.
0: I was at Burroughs' house in Lawrence the last time Ginsburg and Burroughs saw each other. Uh, I'd been there several times. We visited Burroughs there. I considered Burroughs' sort of family. He was I could relate to him. He was St. Louis and Midwestern. These other jerks like Carak Mommy's boy. He couldn't. He couldn't even drive a stick shift. Neil get mad at him for tearing his clutch up and shit. But anyway, someone from the audience asked Alan and William their favorite lines in all of literature. So, Williams was. Tomorrow, Tomorrow, Tomorrow. And I always related it like, you know, tomorrow getting dope or something like that, but it has a much deeper meaning in the play of Shakespeare, real deep meaning. It's hard to even unravel it, but it's sort of like, you know, if the bitch was here uh, and not dead, it had... It related to the killing of his wife, sort of. I thought, but. Uh, cause to Burroughs, his wife. Yeah, because in Shakespeare, the the whoever uh, was killed, the woman who was killed. Lady Macbeth. Lady Macbeth. She could have, she could have been there too, and that sort of trips off the tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. It's a different whole philosophical meaning than I thought. It's real deep. You have to study the play, sort of. Now, Ginsberg was that, in black ink my love may still shine bright. So um, he uh, tried to recite the sonnet, and I said, well, you can't you, you can't do that with Shakespeare. You have to recite the whole sonnet. So I began reciting the whole sonnet, so, since brass, nor stone, nor earth, nor boundless sea, but sad mortality, or sways their power. So. Uh, so even though sonnets are short, it, it, it got long and, and Burroughs uh, he doesn't like anyone to quote poetry to him. Sort of He got that feeling, but he was sitting there. He always had his 38, and he was always fingering his 38. So, and then he was getting nervous, you know. And I had this picture in my mind. as an old uh, old movie where. Some Shakespearean actor was on stage out west somewhere in Nevada, and they someone took a gun and made him pow, 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 pow and on the stage made him made him dance. You know, so we ate and then uh, Burroughs uh, he was sort of, you know, I didn't ever want to go to bed, but he got his pajamas on. And then he passed around his sugar skull that I guess appears in some of his writing prominently that he had done in Mexico at the maybe the time of his wife's death or something, I don't know. But it, it appears in his writing, and so he passed his, the sugar skull around. Now, during the whole meal, and my friend had to go out with Alan to get special food because Alan had to make a big point about he can't have any sugar at the meal. So after we passed the sugar skull around, I I... St- Told William, I said, "Well, at least, uh, at least uh, Alan won't eat your skull." <laughs> and, and Burroughs really liked that. He chuckled. Now Ginsburg won't eat my skull. <laughs> Fight tuberculosis, folks. Christmas Eve, an old junkie selling Christmas seals on North Park Street. The priest, they called him. Fight tuberculosis,
1: folks. That's William S. Burroughs reading his story, Priest, They Called Him, as accompanied by Kurt Cobain's guitar in the summer of 1993, just a few months before Cobain's death. There's actually a strong connection between the beats and various figures from the punk rock world. Since the mid-1990s, for example, Charlie Plymel has befriended and collaborated with punk and post-punk luminaries, including Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon of Sonic Youth, Mike Watt of the Minutemen, and Grant Hart of Husker Du. Charlie actually appears in the music video for Grant Hart's 1999 song Nobody Rides for Free, which I'll link to in the show notes at rolfpots.com. But despite his more recent collaborations, Charlie is best known for his time-honored connection to the beats which is somewhat ironic since he takes issue with the very notion of what beat has come to mean.
0: The term beat was from our days, Hunky's days, Benzedrine in Wichita, across the tracks, jazz clubs. And uh, we'd say, hey man, I'm beat. And so when Hunky said it in front of Kerouac and Ginsburg, oh, what a, ah. And so they made it into everything, beatitude and everything. (laughs) Started generation with it, but it was a common expression. Hey man, I'm beat after all night on Benzedrine. But like Burroughs himself said, I never considered myself a beat. That's what he said and that's what I say. That was the brand and uh, they, you know, my first book was published by Ferlinghetti and he published my big Apocalypse Rose poem in City Lights Journal, and <clears throat> they all arrived at my doorstep at Golf Street. And the Carnival... I became a beat by uh, osmosis. Get your tickets now. Guess how many human variables here tonight. Throw a quasi-ergodic curve in space, and when a hot water bottle Hit the perpendicular harmonic oscillators with a plasmatic
1: hammer. When... This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. You're listening to Charlie Plymel read his poem Carnival as accompanied by Sam Duke and veteran punk rocker Mike Watt. More about Charlie Plymel's poetry, books, and interviews can be found at the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by myself and Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.
0: Great speckled bird. Bird, 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 bird. Here? Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's about that's a version of that f- Sam Schusterman poem that is on the plaque was on the plaque downtown Wichita at the bus station, okay. Sam Schusterman the shoe store man, and that's I think that's the first version of that.
1: Can you can you read that first?
0: Sam Schusterman the shoe store man. Under the overpass, over the manholes in old downtown, uptown Wichita has, like a cast iron front store you'd see on the Bowery, he sold them used shoes to the old folks, poor folks, and those hipster bopping down the street on Douglas Avenue, main drag hip to the tip a few blocks from the great white waist Snooker hall, long time gone. He got the U shoes where the floor shines, shines and the floor shines too. He got time and the togs and to climb up any gamey frame. He got the wing tips, high top, blue suede to off-size, replete, repaired, recast, retread, rebuffed, run over, factory rejects for the dejected, rejected. The prejudiced multitude, the crude, the recluse, the dolly boppers and the bee boppers, and suburban sinners at the door, galloping sluts. He stretches off the off-size, puts shoals in the two wides, black and white shoes for the blacks and whites, two pointy toes for those with a point of view, peg, pachuco, trousers, silver, watch, chain, deja vu, oxfords for the that da- saddle or the golf goof to even penny loafers for a memory of swing. High heel boots for the shit stompers and whammied-out galloping sluts, hip boots laced in place, glittering fast socks, clean up the alley-cooch plastic pumps, wide taps, when the wheels, patent leather for the patched pond and gaiters galore. I'm going down to Sam Schusterman's store across the Santa Fe tracks and get me something to bop the night train in, rack back my sack and lay in the nod in the bog for the sod. So funk it and honk it and trim the slim trinket, cause I got my new used kickers on, shuffling and scuffling down the street, swift as a sneaker's shoestring, long time before Doc Martin made the scene.
1: Nice. <laughs>